Hi, friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In episode 19, Sasha interviews Dr. Tiffany Love about overcoming a difficult work environment. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today with a very special guest, a woman that I met through the Harvard Women's Leadership Conference, where her and I both served on faculty. And actually, I had been stalking her for a while on social media and following her on Twitter. And uh, we had a mutual acquaintance who would rave about her. And so I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Tiffany Love to the show today. Welcome, Tiffany. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm so excited and I know you're you're in Maine and it's freezing there. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you do and what you, uh, you know, just kind of a little bit about your story. But first, just introduce yourself to us and tell us where are you? What do you do? What is your job? All right. So I am the regional chief nursing officer for Coastal Healthcare Alliance, and that includes two hospitals and a 12 hospital system known as Maine Health. So I started that position approximately six, seven months ago. I just left the Department of Veterans Affairs, where I served as the deputy associate director for patient care services. So I've got a little bit of experience with the federal and private sector, which is pretty exciting. So you are a healthcare executive and you have been a leader for, uh, I think you, you, when you and I talked, you said over 20 years, you've been in the healthcare field and leading in the executive space. So has that always been just super easy? (laughs) Absolutely not. You know, that's funny that you should say that. I started working in the hospital when I was 15 years old. My father did not want me to work at a fast food restaurant. So he got me a job in dietary at a small community hospital. And I literally progressed through the ranks. I went on to become a nurse assistant. Then I decided that I actually wanted to go to school to be a nurse. Originally, I thought I wanted to go to medical school. And I had an experience with a patient that really changed my perspective. And I thought, no, I really do enjoy spending that one-on-one time with a patient. So I changed course and went into nursing. That's amazing. So you have literally, uh, I mean, you've gone the full spectrum. You went from working in dietary services to basically, you know, running a major executive branch of a two health or two hospital health system. I mean, what a story that that's amazing. And I, the reason that I really wanted to have you on the show is because, you know, I think that it is so hard um, for women to rise through the ranks without becoming a little jaded or a little toughened, a little hardened. Um, Mm -hmm. And the first thing I noticed about you is your beautiful smile and your presence and your energy and your positivity. And I thought, okay, here's a woman who has found a very successful healthcare career and is a leader in our field. And yet I just want to sit and have coffee with her and like chit chat. And I felt more energized leaving you as I did before I met you, which I think is such a rarity to find. And so I would love for you to 
tell your story and, and share with us about, you know, how did you go from, um, this young person who worked in dietary to how did you not just lead, but lead effectively and lead with such positivity? Well, let me tell you, it has been a challenge. Uh, I, it was only recently that I had begun to tell my story because I realized so many women will tell the positive stories about their career, but they don't share the negative stories that really helped make them who they are today mm. and really helped build them up to be successful. So I'll start by giving you a little bit about my background. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, Midwestern girl like yourself. And I started my career in nursing at a large teaching hospital. Uh, the ho hospital was on the same campus as Case Western Reserve University. So I went back to become a nurse practitioner. And then about a year or so later, I decided to get my PhD from the graduate school there. And as I was finishing up my PhD, I was looking for opportunities where I could do research and clinical. And that led me to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So I relocated to Hudson Valley, New York. And after that position, I realized that I could rise through the ranks more quickly if I was willing to relocate. So I moved from Hudson Valley, New York to Muskogee, Oklahoma, until I got to Shreveport, Louisiana. And that is the position where I was appointed as the Deputy Associate Director for Patient Care Services, which is equivalent to being a Deputy Chief Nursing Officer. And the reason that I was drawn to this role was because my boss was a woman, the CEO of the hospital was a woman, and the regional CEO was a woman. And I thought that was really unusual to find. And I was so excited to learn from all of these women. And hopefully, I thought it would be my opportunity to advance to the executive suite. Well, approximately within the first six months of my being there, there was an unannounced Joint Commission survey that did not go well. And I will never forget that night seeing my CEO sit there with the surveyor and I knew it was bad. I knew it was bad. And sure enough, that Monday morning, the CEO came in and announced that she was retiring. And then my boss turned to me and told me that she could not promise that she would stay. And I had no idea how much that moment would change the trajectory of my career. Hmm. Now, my boss made sure that her last day was the first day the new CEO started. That should have been a clue to me that something <laughs> was not right. <laughs> right. But, you know, I didn't question it. At this point, I still consider myself to be a young, naive healthcare executive, even though I had been in the federal government for a while and I had been through some things. But I still was, you know, kind of innocent, expecting the best, not really prepared for the worst. And so I stepped up into her role until a temporary replacement was selected. The CEO immediately made it clear that I would not be his choice because her role would be the role that I would naturally progress to. Right. Well, uh, I had come from a very loving background where I was always supported. I mean, before I graduated as a nurse practitioner, I had several job offers just verbally and informally. So I was not accustomed to 
not being selected. I was an overachiever and I was so eager to please that I thought I could demonstrate my worth and change his mind. Mm. I soon realized that there was nothing, nothing Mm. that I could say or do to make him want me. He did not want me. And so it quickly became apparent to me also that the CEO did not seem to like women and he especially did not like women of color. Mm. And so the boardroom meetings quickly turned into opportunities for the CEO to demean and intimidate the leadership team. And he would make statements to literally verbally attack us. He would attack my leadership decisions and my skills. And then when I tried to respectfully respond, he would put his hand up like a stop sign and say, I'm still talking. Oh, my goodness. My heart sank. I I felt angry. I was hurt. I had essentially been told to shut up. And so in order to keep my composure, because I'll tell you, I'm a firm believer. You don't cry in a boardroom. You don't lose your temper. You, You have to maintain control because people will not hear you. They will get lost in the fact that you're upset in your response. So you have to maintain control. So I would look down to keep my composure, but I noticed that he only did this to the women. And mm-hmm. often I was the only woman in that boardroom. So I was often the one who got the stop sign and was basically um, demeaned in front of my colleagues. And then on top of that, at the end of the meeting, he would dismiss everyone but me and he would hold me back and he would reprimand me as if I was not allowed to respond. And this went on for several months. The abuse escalated. And finally, I complained to the regional CEO and his attacks became more vicious and more public. And I realized I was officially at war with the CEO and this went on for three years until he was fired. Oh, wow. Now, as you could imagine, I cried almost every night for that first year. I I just couldn't believe that I was in this situation where this man, he did not want me not for my boss's job. He didn't even want me for the job that I had earned. Right. And so uh, somehow I found the strength to fight, to get up every day. Thank you, Joel Olstein, for helping me get out the bed in the morning. <laughs> um, but I finally, I went to my friend who was an internal medicine physician and I asked for help. And I could not get through the appointment without breaking down in tears. I was depressed. And the craziest part about this situation is that I was offered other job opportunities that could have removed me from the situation. I would accept the opportunity and then I would later decline because I knew they were not the next step in my career. Right. And one one of the executive team members who had witnessed the abuse firsthand because he was getting it, too. One day he told me I had better wife syndrome. And I laughed. And then I cried because he was right. I was experiencing some type of post-traumatic symptoms from this ongoing, just, you know, um, demeaning, demoralizing treatment. 
So and there's I, so there's so many things that you said that you've said that I'm like taking notes that I want to unpack. I can't wait to talk about because <laughs> there's there's so much for us to learn, I think, as women in your story. Um, mm-hmm. I want you to tell us how I, I want to go back to several things. and I'm taking notes. But how, first, how did you how did you get like, how were you able to step back and see the situation objectively and realize that it was not you? that you, that there was nothing you could do to change his mind and to change his behavior and Mm -hmm. that you had to either just continue on knowing that you were going to, you know, experience verbal abuse and, Mm -hmm. um, that you were going to be reprimanded and that you were going to be treated very poorly despite your achievements and despite your work ethic or that you were going to have to leave. How did you, how did you just kind of rise past that and, you know, get up every day and go to work? Well, so first, let me just say that, you know, I, I am a high achiever. You set a target, you set a goal. I don't care how high it is. I'm going to go for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put 120% into it. If I have to work 12 hours a day, every day, I will reach that goal. And what I realized is that when I reached the goal, he would change the target. Mm-hmm. So yep. <laughs> after months of this, I realized there is no winning with this guy. Yeah. Now, everyone around him, even our chief of psychiatry, said that he is a narcissist. And I truly believe he fits that definition. And so the, it did not matter what I accomplished. He would always belittle the accomplishment. Yep. <laughs> And yeah. So and it, isn't it, it, just, it, it's interesting how, um, it takes you when you are a high achiever, which I am as well. And then I also am a wooer. So I love to win others over yes. <laughs> and it's, I have learned that this can be a really dangerous situation for me when someone just is, is not a Sa- Sasha fan or right. is threatened mm-hmm. by me. Um, especially mm-hmm. people, you know, in power, um, yeah. you know, they either, like me for my work ethic and appreciate my work ethic or they're threatened. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, because I love to win others over, I will just be like, Oh no, I'm going to make that person like me. And oftentimes it takes someone else to go, Sasha, nothing you do is ever going to let them, you know, give you an add a girl or a pat on the back, or you're, they're never going to want to share a cup of coffee with you. You just have Mm -hmm. to let it go, which is really hard for me because I love to win others over. That's one of my top five strengths. So I, I think it's interesting because sometimes it's been other people who have said to me, like you said, your friend, you know, this person, it's not about Tiffany love at this person, at this point, it's about this other person's uh, deficits, leadership deficits and personality disorders. It sounds like, and there's Mm -hmm. nothing you can do to change that, you know? So, um, I think it's really interesting, but I also think it's, I wanted to unpack what you said earlier about how women don't talk about the bad stuff. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that when we talk about our career and our achievements as women, we cover up any, negative thing that has happened, which I think is so interesting about the Me Too movement because Mm -hmm. I have seen so many women privately come to me and share their stories with me. Um, But because they're in a position of power, Mm -hmm. they are afraid to share something that happened to them 20 years ago 
because they don't want to be seen. Even today, they don't want to be seen as something as like whining about something that happened to them 20 years ago. It's just, it's just, and I think, you know, why do you think we do that as women? Why do you think we don't share the bad? Well, there are two reasons I believe this is the situation. I honestly believe there is an unspoken rule in the executive suite that we don't talk about the bullying behaviors that go on. I have looked at the research because I'm thinking to myself, you see CEOs stepping down every day because they didn't get along with the board of trustees. Or you see situations where other executives leave their role because they don't get along with the executive team. I have seen people screaming in the boardroom. I have heard stories about CEOs standing up on top of tables, yelling at the team, but you don't hear those. People don't tell those stories. And honestly, as women, I think we have been trained to be in that culture of you don't tell the negative story. You only tell the positive. You put on your heels, you put on your lipstick, you smile for the camera. And you kind of leave that story for your girlfriends over a glass of wine, mm-hmm. but you don't publicly talk so about. That is so true. That is so the time true. Someone tried to take you out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, yeah. And it's just really interesting, isn't it? That that is it. That that's just kind of like it's almost like we applaud our silence. Right. Right. Like we're like, well, this is what happened to me, you know, and And think about how lonely the woman is that is going through it. Like a woman that is going through having a boss who is treating her the same way and just dealing with it, just taking it in silence because you are afraid to let people know that you're pretty much got better wife syndrome. Yes. (laughs) And you're trying to figure out how to deal. It took a while for me to even realize that I was putting up with way too much. I mean, it clearly was above and beyond anybody's code of conduct. And not only that, Sasha, the people who supervised this person, they said they didn't understand what I was complaining about. I thought, are you kidding me? Right. This is unreal. But literally, it took years before it was truly addressed. I mean, they would do investigations and say that they were looking into it. And um, I had another executive who worked under this gentleman who she said she was told someone's career is going to be derailed and it won't be his. Mm. Yeah. So so how... I, I loved what you said. I just identified so much with what you said about how shocking it was for you when your, you know, your assessment of your work and your treatment and how he treated you had nothing to do with your delivery of, of, you know, your work expectations. And mm-hmm. I think that there comes a time where you, I've been in a situation where I did not um, feel supported in my work environment. Right. And despite everything I was achieving, I, I just couldn't, you know, get any sort of, um, uh, of agreement. And I think that you have to, you know, those were some of the darkest days because exactly mm-hmm. what you said, I felt so isolated. And yes. I think that it's really easy for you to just go, wait a minute, what is wrong with me? This is why am I being treated this way? And, and it, it's really important. I think 
at those times that we have people around us to support us who can say, actually, this is not about you. (laughs) And it's interesting because the more that I have achieved and the more that I rise the ladder, the more harsh some of my, the criticism and the attacks come at you. And I Mm -hmm. think it honestly is because when you are a successful woman, people don't really know how to they have a certain set of expectations around you. And if you are a successful woman who, who is happy and joyful, they really don't know what to do with you. Right. Because they want to label us as, you know, as bitchy and they want to label you as incompetent incompetent, and they want (laughs) to label you. So you can't be actually nice and competent. Right. Like that's like, you know, if you're a man, you're labeled often as arrogant, but very confident and very competent. And it's seen as a positive. Yeah, exactly. But for a woman, it's like, oh, you know, you must be stupid if you're if you're kind or you can't be both friendly and uh, force. You know, it's it's just Mm -hmm. so they put you in these buckets. And I have never been as attacked as I have been the more ambitious or the more I lead. It's it's right. so you have to kind of expect that uh, as a woman mm-hmm. and brace yourself for it because otherwise you just you want to go back to the safe comfort place of being a follower and not a leader because it is so right. hard to stick your neck out. Once you start leading, once you start asserting yourself and showing that you actually are competent, you're just mm-hmm. going to be attacked. And right. it's hard for us. It's hard for us especially when we are high achievers. And so how how has this experience shaped the way you lead? Ah, so that is a wonderful question. So number one, I am an advocate. I support women. And it's so funny because uh, as a chief nursing officer, people only think about my my authority and my ability to have influence over nursing. I also have a lot of influence over women physicians. And so when I say I support women, I support women at every level and every discipline. And as I said, oftentimes I might be the only woman in that boardroom. And so it's important for women to know that I've got your back. And also for women to look in women, look at other women in these positions and have that expectation that they will be an advocate for them. Uh, you know, all I can all I can think is that that experience has given me a backbone of steel and courage that I never had before to to speak up for women um, and also to be a role model. That is the reason I became a board certified healthcare executive because I would make sure that when I wasn't in the room, my credentials could speak for itself. Mm. Uh, that is why I focus so carefully on continuing education every year to develop my skills as a healthcare executive, because I do someday want to get to the level of CEO. And oh, you I want will. to make you, sure. You will. So one of these days I'm going to be like, oh yeah, my friend <laughs> Tiffany, who's the CEO of XYZ. And I cannot wait for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we need that. You know, the the executive suite is 86% Caucasian male. And I would say that some of the conversation we had today is why. Because women are often not welcome in that boardroom. Yep. Oh, and it's and and it's honestly, it's this is some one of the things that I have realized. It is not that women are not competent enough to lead. There are hundreds, thousands of women out there who could easily yes. step into a boardroom today and share in the experiences and the and, and their expertise. It's that you get war weary. I mean, right. I just think like sometimes I'll leave a, a, a weekend of committee meetings or board meetings. And I just think to myself, I am exhausted because mentally I have to think so hard about every word I say, because yeah. I know that because I'm one of the only women in the room, I'm mm-hmm. going to be, it's going to be judged. It's going to be um, put down or, you know, taken out, of taken out of context. So I have to be mentally so sharp and, and, and plan every word and not just for me, for the women that come behind me, because they're not just judging Sasha, they're judging all women based on Sasha. So I don't think people realize, I know the men in the room don't realize that it is exhausting for us. And it's not because, you know, we're not, we're uh, ready to do the hard work or we're not willing to leave our families. That has nothing to do with it. It's because it's exhausting to be that isolated. And I cannot imagine how isolating it is to be the only minority woman. I mean, I mean, I, I just don't, I mean, how can you share your experiences with us as women? How yes. is how is it being a minority woman for Caucasian women like myself, for women, white women like myself? How do we support right. our minority sisters? How do we help the Tiffany loves out there? Well, you know, that is so funny that you should say that. Oftentimes I am. I don't want to say I'm not aware of it, but I am so accustomed to being the only woman in the room, to being the only minority in the room that for me, it doesn't come into my mind as a factor Unless someone brings it up or unless someone says something that is blatantly disrespectful or discriminatory. But I have to say, I am so fortunate that that is a very unusual occurrence. Now, I'm so glad that you asked that question, because right now I'm in Maine, which is probably the whitest state in the United States of America. (laughs) But I feel so much inclusion. And, you know, my boss, he actually is very sensitive to the fact that it is kind of a predominantly white male um, institution or, you know, just being at that executive level. He is very mindful of that. And he will actually ask for my feedback to say, oh, is this an old white man thing to do? Yeah. (laughs) He's a very funny character. Yeah. And so I just appreciate him even asking me for the feedback. Like, is it appropriate that we carry on certain traditions that have been done by white men over time? And just seeking my advice and my input means the world to me. Yeah. Isn't that amazing how I often get men asking me like, how do we involve, how do we support women? And I just said, you know what? Ask them for help. Ask them for their advice. Ask them to weigh in, let them speak. Like there's nothing more um, solidifying to me than when a um, a room full of men listen to value my opinion because what Mm -hmm. that says to me is they value other women's opinion 
It's not just Sasha's opinion and they are, you know, includers. So I love that. I love that. He just asks you that, like that, you know, that he just lays it out there. And I will tell you the time where I experienced the absolute most discrimination as a woman, as a person of color was in the South. It was shocking to me that women we're still being treated like second-class citizens in the federal government. Right. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was disturbing. And, and this is where I witnessed my friend who went on to become the first female chief of medicine. That, that position had been held by Caucasian men since the beginning of the hospital. So she became not only the first woman chief of medicine, but the first person of color to be in that role. And I would watch as they would go around the room in the board of directors room and call different people, you know, doctor, and then by their first name, and then they will call her by her first name. And I thought, you know, it was just so offensive. I know. Um, and at, at that particular point in time, I couldn't, you know, speak up on her behalf or re, you know, amplify right. the fact that she is a physician. Please address her as Dr. X to give her back her title, give her back what she has earned. And oftentimes they did the same thing to me. They will go around the room and call certain people doctor, and then they will call me by my first name, the CEO who was intimidating me. And so I realized he was being strategic with who he chose to call doctor and who he chose to call by their first name. Yeah, it's really, it's very interesting um, when you start selectively pointing out those microaggressions Mm -hmm. to people in the room. Um, I I, I think it's really interesting. I think that it's, it's, I have a friend who is um, English is their second language. And this person is Mm -hmm. extremely qualified. She is an amazing leader. And she said, one of the things that she gets asked all the time is, you know, where are you from? Oh, oh, you're English. Where did you learn how to speak English? And she's American. And she's like, Exactly. You know, she's like, I grew up in a household. There were two different languages, but she's like, people act like they're shocked that I actually am educated. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, how many times have I asked that question? It made me look at my own approach to people. And I think that it's really hard because we all have biases. We all have unconscious bias against uh, or towards people. And, mm-hmm. but it's not until we actually think about it and think about the implications of that. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you because I get, I, I had an interesting conversation recently with a group of people. Um, and there were a couple women in the room, but mostly men. And the women were saying how, you know, women are just harder on women. They make the, they make worse bosses. And I, I had to speak up because I said, you know, women in medicine make up 8% of chairs, I think, and 3% of deans. I mean, it's a very small percentage. And so we're judged harsher because just based on the statistics, you're, you're all, you're going to know fewer women leaders, right? right? Like you said, you know, 87% of the boardroom are Caucasian men. Um, mm-hmm. And so how do you overcome here? You are, you are in the boardroom, you are leading, you are a minority woman. How do you try to overcome that kind of, you know, negative assumption that people have against you before they've even met you? Having those crucial conversations, you know, after those meetings, 
even though the CEO was my boss and was terrorizing me like nobody's business, I made it a point to have the crucial conversation with him about how he addressed me mm-hmm. and how he talked to me. And those were some of the most intimidating times in my life. But somehow I found a way to have a voice. Uh, and when he was replaced with a different CEO who now it was an all Caucasian team and they were looking to replace my boss's position with another Caucasian male, I made it a point to tell the CEO, your leadership team no longer represents the community that it serves. Here we are in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is more than 50% black, yet you do not have a single black person on this leadership team. And and now you will have no women. Mm. So it is so important that we do take the time to have the crucial conversations with the people who need to hear them, whether it's the CEO or whomever. Uh, and, And that's with risk. I do realize that when you have these conversations, it is not without its risk. But right. someone has to stand up. And let me just say that the person who he selected turned the job down. The next person he selected was a Caucasian female. And I felt like that's a step in the right direction. Right. Well, and, you know, despite what he how he treated you, you you planted mm-hmm. seeds. You know, yeah. he's going to probably remember things that you said to him. And, and I mean, it, you hate to be the person that had to fall on their sword. I, I say that all the time. I don't know how many mm-hmm. times I have been told in my life, well, no one's asked, well, no one's tried to do what you're doing or we don't know what to do with you. And I think, okay, here we go again. <laughs> I'm always in these spines myself in these situations where I'm the trailblazer and everyone thinks, mm-hmm. oh, you're a trailblazer. That's great. But it actually is rather difficult at times because you're doing the work for the next person that comes behind you, hopefully making that path a little easier for them to walk upon. But you know, it's true. I've had to tell myself that like, okay, it's hard for me, but hopefully it'll be a little easier. And I'm sure that you made him, you put things in his mind by stepping up and having those crucial conversations, but you're right. It's not without risk. It's not like, you know, you won't face some backlash by some people you will, but I think it's so important that we still continue to just move forward. And man, you have so many amazing things to talk about. We could just talk forever. Like you and I could sit and talk about so many things, but I just want to really thank you, Tiffany. I want you to, I want to just thank you for leading and thank you for supporting women, whether they're nurses or whether they're physicians or whether they're executives or techs or anybody in your health system. I know that you support those women. And I just want to thank you for being a leader because you are, you know, despite all of, all of the things against you, you are an amazing leader. And, um, I just want to tell you, thank you, because I know it's not easy. I know it's hard. I know that you face a lot of, uh, of discrimination and loneliness and isolation at times, and it's hard at the top. And so I just want to make sure that I thank you for leading, um, and telling you how important it is for us to have role models, because you are a role model for so many women that are going to look in your health system, in your community and say, okay, Tiffany, Tiffany did it. Dr. Love did it. I'm going to be able to do it. And that's what we need. We need more women at the top. And so thank you so much for 
talking with me today. How can, how can women out there that want to get involved in executive leadership, how can they find you? How can they follow you? Share your Twitter handles. We'll put them in the, the podcast notes as well, but tell us how we can follow you. So I am on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. It's Tiffany Love PhD. So on Twitter, it is uh, Tiffany Love PhD. I don't think there's any underscore there. Correct. It's all one word. Okay. And then um, Dr. Tiffany Love on LinkedIn. Okay. Perfect. And Instagram, it is Tiffany Love. And Facebook, it is Tiffany Love. Okay, awesome. Well, we are going to follow you. And um, I just know that, you know, we are, we're going to watch your career. And I just, I can't wait to see what the next thing is for you. And I'm just so grateful that I call you a friend. Thank you for being so candid today and sharing your story. And for those of you listening who are in a difficult work environment, I hope that um, Dr. Love gave you some great tips and some encouragement by sharing her story today. And just remember to live brave. This has been an HSG production. 